Today's scripture comes from Ruth 1, verses 1 to 18. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Maon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the other named Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Molon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have no hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Gracious God, be with us now. Open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Use your word to reveal more about yourself, more about us. Help us to be, to see you for who you are. And be with the children now as they are downstairs and the youth, uh, and the children downstairs as they learn more about you too. In your honor we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here. You saw a couple of my boys up there. I guarantee you I do more than just eat chocolate. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so this past week, my wife Jess and I have been watching this show, Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+. Plus. It's a TV series that gives the backstory connecting Star Wars episodes 1, 2, and 3 with Star Wars episodes 4, 5, and 6. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, don't worry, neither do I. <laughs> The, the point is that backstories are increasingly popular these days. Well, what's a backstory? A backstory, uh, the, the backstories are the stories that fill in the gaps of other stories. Um, and in some ways, that's one of the ways to view the book of Ruth. See, in the past two weeks, we've gone through the story of Abraham and the story of David. 
And the book of Ruth gives us the backstory that connects the story of Abraham with the story of David. But while the book of Ruth does give us the backstory, it's much more than a backstory. It's a beautiful story of God's kindness and God's provision through the faith of the most unexpected of people in the most unexpected of times. And there's so much in these chapters to encourage us in our faith. Are you excited? I'm really excited. You ask any of the staff, any of my family, I've been excited about this one all week. So let's, let's get started. What we're going to do for our time this morning is we're going to just walk through the whole story. If you're wondering, did we consider making scripture reading all four chapters? Yes, we did. But no, we did not. <laughs> we're going to walk through all these four chapters and we're going to have four points to try and help us along our way to summarize the story. The first point is this, an unexpected faith. An unexpected faith. Look at verse 1 again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, the days when the judges ruled were dark days in Israel. God had rescued them from, from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them miraculously into the promised land. And when they first entered, they were ruled by these leaders known as judges. But the joy of entering the land is very quickly replaced by the gloom of disobedience and sin as judge and judgment. If you read through the book of Judges, which, which covers this time period, you would know that there's one phrase that's repeated the entire way, which is, and the people, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it's in these dark days that Ruth, the story of Ruth opens. And the story makes a darker turn still very, very quickly on. There's a famine. And a man named Elimelech leads his wife, Naomi, and their two sons out of Bethlehem to the country of Moab. Now, the author is silent about their reason for moving to Moab, but we do know that Moab was Israel's enemy. And so moving from Israel to Moab would have been shameful and dangerous. And then Elimelech dies. His two sons directly disobey God's law then by, by marrying Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then both sons die, leaving their mother Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, completely alone and in a very desperate situation. You see, you see theirs was a patriarchal culture. Women didn't own or trade anything. They were completely dependent on the men in their family for status and security. So it's a huge problem when there were no more men in the family. See, Naomi was an old widow without children and with no hope of remarriage, with no hope of having more children, meaning that she was right at the bottom of the food chain. And so this is why she tells Orpah and Ruth, save yourselves. Look at 1 verse 8 again. She tells them, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. You see, all hope seems lost, doesn't it? Naomi realizes that she is just a liability. She is just a liability holding Orpah and Ruth back. And so she advises them, well-intentioned, to, to just cut their losses. Cut their losses, save yourself, and go back. 
Go back to your people, maybe where at least they have the chance of finding some support from their families. Perhaps even they can find husbands and remarry and so start a new life away from this horrible nightmare. After some back and forth, Orpah reluctantly goes back, as we, as we saw read just now. And then Naomi turns to Ruth and says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And then come some of the most beautiful lines in all the Bible. I'm going to read it again. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I could just sit in this all day. Make no mistake about it, this is much more than a statement of loyalty to Naomi. This is a statement of faith. A statement of faith in the living God. One of the biggest boldest, most beautiful statements of faith we see in all of Scripture. Made beautiful not just because of what it says, but in who says it and when she says it. But before we go into that, we see here, don't we, that faith is a yes or no question. We either have faith in God or we don't have faith in God. We are either following God or we are not following God. There's no in-between here. Ruth either stays or she goes. See, our culture tells us that there's a way to be half a Christian. There's a way to partially follow God until He tells me to go where I don't want to go. Where, where that our culture says that we, you can accept God's lordship, except in the areas you don't want to accept God's lordship in. But that's not faith, is it? As a Christian once famously said, if God is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. We can see this in Ruth. But yet, even as Ruth gives this beautiful, bold declaration of faith, we can see her faith is so unexpected, isn't it? One reason her faith is so unexpected is because of the cost. One, one scholar puts it this way, in following God, Ruth left her family and all that was familiar to her to live in an unfamiliar land with no family, with an uncertain future, as an outsider with no legal rights. See, given the cost, her faith is so unexpected, isn't it? It doesn't seem to make any sense. You see, to those without faith, faith in Christ will always be unexpected because of the cost. It was unexpected for Ruth and it is unexpected for us. We will always have to leave in order to follow. But as those who have put our faith in Christ, who have been given eyes by the Spirit to see, faith makes perfect sense. Because the gain of, from following Christ is and always will be far more than the cost of what we have to leave behind. So Ruth's faith was unexpected because of the cost. And not just because of the cost, but because of who she was. Five times in this short book, she is known, she is called Ruth the Moabitess. 
You see, Ruth stands out as a hero of faith for us to learn from, but her name also stands out in the Old Testament as the only book named after a non-Israelite. This would have stood out even more so at the time because in a culture that values ethnic purity, she's an ethnic outsider from a country that historically was Israel's enemy. In a culture where men hold all the power, she's a widow with no sons. In the world she was in, based on who she was, no one would have expected her to receive salvation as God's people, let alone have a book named after her in God's word. Christ City, who do you not expect to have faith in God? Who do you think is beyond God's salvation? Who do you think does not deserve God's salvation? In fact, perhaps there's some of you here today who think you are beyond God's salvation. Even as you sit here in this chair, in this very room, you feel like a fraud, like an outsider. If that is you, take heart from Ruth. You see, the good news of the gospel is that faith is unexpected for all of us. And until we realize we, none of us deserve salvation, we will not get salvation. See, none of us deserve salvation, but by the grace of God, all of us are invited to receive salvation by faith in Christ because salvation is based on who God is and what God has done rather than who we are. And so if you're not a Christian, can I invite you to consider this good news? Talk to the person who came with you. Or if you came by yourself, come talk to me. Come talk to John. Talk to anyone else you can grab a, hand, uh, grab a hold of. This is good news. And I invite you to just consider this good news. So let's turn back to the story. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. As you move into chapter 2, Ruth then goes to glean in the fields. See, there was, a, there was a law in the land that allowed foreigners and widows such as Ruth to glean, which means to pick up bits of the harvest that had fallen to the floor or that the farmers had forgotten to harvest. And so Ruth, as the story goes, goes to glean in a field belonging to a man named Boaz, who we are told is a worthy man and a relative of Ruth's late father-in-law. As Ruth is gleaning in this field, Boaz enters the field and takes notice of her. And this is where we pick up the story again in 2 verse 8. Boaz talks to Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and she passed to her, and he passed to her roasted grain. 
and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And then after this, Ruth gleans till the end of the day and brings home her lunch leftovers as well as what she has gleaned that day. Naomi praises Boaz's kindness and then the camera zooms out, as it were, as Ruth continues gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Ruth, too, is so full of extravagant kindness, isn't it? You read this and you go, oh my goodness. That's our second point for this morning. Extravagant kindness. Not just kindness, extravagant kindness, kindness that seems to have no limit, that goes way above and beyond what is required or expected. Specifically, we see, we see three things about kindness. First, we see the cost of kindness. The cost of kindness. Someone once told me that he saw all of life as one big computer game. And the aim, your aim as the player in this game is to collect as many points as you can. And the people that come your way are just ways to get more points. I don't know how you view the world, but Ruth got no points for sticking with Naomi. It's important we see that. Her kindness to Naomi in leaving Moab and staying with Naomi to go into a foreign land and then needing to provide food for Naomi was on the surface at least all cost and no benefit. But that's something we already know, don't we? Whether we've been givers of kindness or recipients of kindness, we know that kindness is costly. Second thing about kindness we see is that the obedience of kindness. The obedience of kindness. You see, Boaz's kindness was also costly. We can see that. But in some part, Boaz's kindness to Ruth was just obedience. Obedience to God's law. As I mentioned earlier, laws like the ones in Deuteronomy 24 said that harvesters had to leave grain for the vulnerable to glean. And in, in some ways, Boaz was just obeying this law. But the thing is, the thing about laws is that it's not enough just to know that we should be kind or that we even have to be kind. If you're anything like me, you would know that when there's a law, we always look for the loophole in the law. And that's how it was for many of the landowners in Ruth's time. They found creative ways around this law by tricking and mocking and even rebuking those who tried to glean from their field. This is why Boaz is to keep going out of his way to tell Ruth, stay with us. We're, you're safe with us. Because she knew she wasn't safe with many of the other landowners. You see, the problem was, is, if you do something just because you have to, you'll end up doing the bare minimum. Because kindness is both costly and inconvenient. No, to understand God's heart, we must go beyond seeing kindness as obedience. We must see kindness not just as something we have to do, but as something we want to do. The key to the extravagant kindness we see in Ruth and in Boaz is to see the joy of kindness. You see, Ruth's 
kindness to Naomi is extravagant. It goes way beyond what was expected. Boaz's kindness to Ruth is also extravagant. Rather than doing the bare minimum, he goes way above and beyond what was required. You see, he doesn't just allow Ruth to glean as the law required. He instructs his workers to pull out extra for her. He warns them not to harm her. And then he tells her, actually just stick to my fields. Follow my workers who I promise will look after you. And then in verse 14, he goes on and invites her to eat with them. In a culture where meals have so much significance, he invites her to a meal, even serving her food himself. One commentator writes, this verse, verse 14, is not simply about feeding the hungry. The narrator hereby shows how Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion, generosity, and acceptance. You see, in our passage, the key to understanding the extravagance of Boaz and Ruth's kindness, despite the cost, is to see that they understood God's heart. And therefore, they understood the joy of kindness. You see, there is a joy in kindness as we, as one writer puts it, clothe ourselves with the very character of God. Look at how Boaz addresses Ruth in 3 verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. See, Boaz is making a profoundly theological point here. The word that he uses to describe Ruth's kindness is the exact same word God uses to describe God's own kindness. See, we find joy in kindness. Firstly, because we are clothing ourselves with God's character. But there's something else. We find joy in kindness also when we realize that we're being used by God as an instrument of His kindness to others. Look at 4 verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. We see what's happening here, don't we? These women are praising God for his kindness to Naomi. That doesn't pop out of thin air, that God works through Ruth's kindness to her. It's the same thing with Boaz. Look at how Naomi interprets Boaz's kindness to them in 2 verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, he being um, Boaz, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Again, God's extravagant kindness is worked through Boaz's extravagant kindness. See here we have the cost of kindness, the obedience of kindness, and the joy of kindness. What does this mean for us today? The examples of Ruth and Boaz's extravagant kindness have much to teach us on what it means to live by faith. You see, faith is not waiting around for God to do something. Faith means living and asking God what He would have us do. And then doing what He calls us to do. And God calls us to clothe ourselves with kindness. God calls us to be instruments of His kindness to others in the world. 
Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And God doesn't just show us his heart. He gives us his heart so that we would want to be kind, so that we would be able to be kind. See, Christ City, God doesn't just call us to be kind. His word teaches us how to be kind. And his spirit enables us to be kind, despite the cost. You see, kindness is just the fruit of walking in step with the spirit God has given us as his people living by faith. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and the list goes on. God calls us to clothe ourselves with his kindness. And so here are some questions for us for reflection for today. Would people say that you are kind? Friends, family, acquaintances, bosses, subordinates, restaurant servers. What steps can you take to give yourself the space to be kind? Sometimes, and I I say this about myself, in the name of efficiency, we maximize our money and our time so much that we can't afford to be kind to others. How can we budget for kindness? Rather than packing out our finances, can we leave a little bit to give to others? Can I leave space in my schedule to be kind? When coming to church on a Sunday, might we come a little bit earlier and leave a little bit later so that we give God the space to whisper in our ear someone that he may want us to be kind to? Practically speaking, who is that one person in your life who is in need? And you can't, if you can't think of one, go and find one. How can you pray for them? How can you be kind to them? One specific thing to think about is how to support our 1018 ministry led by Johan. See, the ministry is set up to respond specifically to God's call in Deuteronomy 10.18 to help the vulnerable. And Johan has been really busy getting things set up. I didn't know a human being could spend so much time on the phone, but there we go. And the first information session will be on, it will be in a month's time on July 19th at 6.30pm, Lord willing. We're going to be giving more details nearer to the date. But I say this now because it's the direct application of this passage. And I want us to start thinking about it. How can we be kind to others? There are opportunities that we as a church would like to give us to, uh, to, to participate in. But also there are some areas where God is whispering for us to do on our own. The point is this, kindness is important. And as we live by faith, God wants to use every single one of us to work out His hand of kindness and provision to the world. Which brings us to our third point, God's invisible hand. God's invisible hand. Let's return to Ruth's story. And, but some cultural background is actually helpful before we go on. See, in Ruth's time, only men could own land. Which is why, as we've already mentioned, childless widows like Naomi and Ruth were in such a desperate state. Now, there was a law to protect childless widows like Naomi and Ruth. 
The, the widow could marry a relative of her late husband known as a redeemer and any son they produced would continue the family line and so ensure the widow would be provided for. This is why 2 verse 20 is so significant when Naomi says about Ruth, the man, referring to Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And then in chapter 3, which I'm just going to summarize for us, Naomi instructs Ruth to make herself as clean and as attractive as possible, to go down to the threshing floor at night where they, know, they knew Boaz would be, and to essentially propose to Boaz that he marry her. If this sounds like a risky move, it's because it was a very risky move. <laughs> you see, Boaz could so easily have taken this the wrong way. Boaz could have taken it that Ruth was just trying to have sex with him. And he could have rejected her for her immorality, or worse still, had sex with her. And not just that, we need to see here that Ruth was breaking every single possible rule of their custom. She was a foreigner propositioning an Israelite, a woman propositioning a man, a younger person propositioning an older person, a destitute field worker propositioning the landowner. It was a very risky move with more chances of failure than there were chances of success. But believe it or not, Ruth is rewarded for her boldness. Boaz responds well, saying that he is willing to marry her, but there's one slight complication. There is one other relative who is closer in line than he is. And being closer in line, that relative has the right to redeem Ruth and Boaz before Ruth and Naomi before Boaz does. And so we and so we get into chapter four, which tells us that the next day Boaz goes into the city to settle the matter. He gathers all the people who need to be gathered in this legal proceeding. And after some back and forth, this closer relative gives up his right to redeem. Boaz takes Ruth as his wife and they have a son. I'm not doing these chapters justice as all with my short summary, but we don't have time here. And I just want to point out that the thing that stands out, doesn't it, is God's invisible hand at work. As we've noted there are so many points of tension, so many things that could have gotten so horribly wrong. We see in chapter 3, don't we? God's invisible hand at work, even in the risky schemes of humans. See, the author is silent about whether this was a good idea in the first place. But that God in His sovereignty works His purposes in the midst of this dubious, risky scheme. Chapter 4 shows us God's invisible hand, even in legal processes. There was no way that Boaz could have known how it would have turned out. But God worked his good intentions for his good. And perhaps even earlier on in chapter 2, some of us may have spotted it already. God's invisible hand at work, even in the apparent coincidences and chance events. Look again at 2 verse 3, when Ruth first went out to glean. So she went out, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come. You can almost imagine the author smiling as he's writing this, can't we? 
Because anyone who knows how this story ends, in fact, anyone who knows anything about God, knows that Ruth did not just happen to come to the field belonging to the one person who would redeem her. No, God's invisible hand is behind all of this. God is in complete control of this whole story. Nothing happens by chance. There is no coincidence. In Christ's city, living by faith means trusting God even when we can't see His hand that is at work. And I wonder how many of us need this reminder this morning <laughs> when we are wondering whether it's a good idea to do this. We're wondering, second-guessing whether we made the right decision. When we're in the midst of something where we have no control over, do we trust God's invisible hand? So how should we wrap things up here? I hope you're not, your takeaway is not be kind so that God will reward you. Because that misses a huge point in this story, which is our fourth and final point. God's visible family. If this sermon was a movie, we will now be at the scene at the very end, perhaps even after the credits, that ties everything together and tells you that this story doesn't end here. Because the story of God's family doesn't end here. See, the book of Ruth ends with this genealogy that at first glance seems completely unrelated to what's going on, but it's actually the central point of the story. It traces a genealogy that traces all the way to King David. And putting Ruth, the Moabite, the outsider, the foreigner, the one at the very bottom of the food chain, in the line of King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Hundreds of years later, the writer Matthew opens his story about another king, King Jesus. And he opens by tracing Jesus' visible family line. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Remember, for those of you who don't know, Rahab was a prostitute. <laughs> That's a whole other sermon for another day. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then after this, Matthew traces the line of David all the way to Jesus. David's line is Jesus' line. And do we see God's invisible hand here? Ruth the Moabite, the outsider, the foreigner, the outcast, the widower, the lowest in society, has been folded into the line of King David. And much more than that, she's been folded into the line of King Jesus. And hereby is a profoundly theological point on who deserves to be in the line of King Jesus. You see, the story of Ruth is this. Before God's people even knew to ask for a king, 
When the judges were judging while they were sinning and disobeying God, God's invisible hand was working and preparing the way for a king who would come and save them even before they they knew they needed a savior king. At first glance, we think that king is just King David, but no. You see, the story of Ruth is our story too because it's the story of God's family history. You see, in the midst of the darkness of the world, God's invisible hand was preparing the way for the king, for the king better than King David, who would come and save all of us so that we all could be folded into his visible family. Christ, see, God came to do the unexpected. He sent his son to earth to live the life of perfect faith so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Another way of saying this is that he may show us his extravagant kindness in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus shows us what true extravagant kindness looks like. Jesus' kindness was perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus was kind because of the joy that was set before him and Jesus' kindness came at the, law, at the cost of his own life. And as we live by faith, as recipients of Jesus' extravagant kindness to us, God invites us, he invites every single one of you to be folded into his visible family of faith. This Father's Day, whether this day gives you joy or sorrow or everything in between, know this, you are part of a bigger family. And as God's family, just as we we have received extravagant kindness from our Saviour, and we've received His Spirit that enables us to be extravagantly kind to all those around us, we live to reveal God's hand of kindness to a world in desperate need of a Savior King. Let's stand as we respond to God's Word. <music>